Turn with me, if you would, to chapter 2 of Philippians. Our text begins this morning at verse 19. If you would please give attention to the reading of the Word of God. It is holy. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. Philippians chapter 2. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete What was lacking in your service to me? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would add your blessing to your word, that you would strengthen us by it, that it would be even the very food that we need to live. Lord, we ask that you would teach us to love one another, to serve you, and to trust in you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. The first full summer that I was here as the pastor of Christ Church, we did something that I think was uh, a real blessing to us and was a little bit unusual for our ordinary course of events in the evening. We would, punctuated maybe every other three weeks or four weeks, we would bring in one of our missionaries to give us a report as to what was going on with their mission work. Missionaries who labor hard, who labor in sensitive and dangerous areas, so sensitive and dangerous that for some, I can't mention their names now because the recording of this sermon will go out on the Internet and their safety might be at risk. That's how committed they are to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some might think that that was a good thing to do because as a congregation, we can bring our missionaries in and we can check up on them. We can make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, that they are uh, using wisely the funds that we are giving to them. We make sure, we look back and we observe and see that they're doing what they should be doing, how they should be doing it. But I have to confess to you this morning that that was not the primary purpose that I had in mind for bringing missionaries to speak to us. 
It's the same reason that I don't think the primary purpose for Paul's missionary report this morning on Timothy and Epaphroditus is to explain how they are doing the task that they should. Rather, missionary reports often are here to encourage you and me, the senders of the missionaries, the supporters of the missionaries, to encourage us in the Christian life and to show how we are to live, how we are to work for the gospel. And they provide a wonderful illustration and an example of how the Christian life is to be lived. Not perfect, but yet an example to be emulated. And so this morning here, Paul goes back to his missionary report, his report on the ministry, the state of the union of the church at Philippi in Rome. You may recall he was doing that earlier, up until verse 26 of chapter 1. That's what he was giving. And he broke out in verse 27 to give some exhortation to the Philippians. And so now he's going to begin to use the examples of these servants of the Lord Jesus Christ to show the truth of the theology and the commands that he has just been giving to us. He's picking back up on this report. And the very first missionary that we will see, the very first servant of the Lord, is Timothy. You know Timothy. Two letters written to him, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. You know, my son Timothy, as Paul calls him. There's even a magazine called O Timothy after a phrase in one of those letters. Timothy is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through Timothy, I'd like us to see three things. First, that the Christian life is a humble life. Timothy shows us humility, that the Christian life is a humble life. Secondly, Timothy shows us that the Christian life is a selfless life. It is a life in which we focus upon others. So the Christian life is humble, it is selfless, but it is also focused. Timothy shows us that the Christian life is a focused life. So let's begin now by looking at Timothy, and then we'll turn to a few other men in a moment. First, we see that the Christian life is a humble life, and we get this First, by looking at verses 19 and 20. 19 and 20 almost read, in a sense, like an apology. Paul is writing to the Philippians. Now, you have to get the picture in your mind's eye. This letter would be written on a scroll. It would be written by Paul or by his secretary, rolled up and sealed, and handed to Epaphroditus, who is from Philippi. And Epaphroditus would come in, During perhaps even a church worship service, even as as Steve Mathis reminded us in the book of Philemon a few Sunday evenings ago, and this letter would be read as a part of the service of the gathered people of God. It's because they didn't have the New Testament yet. It was still being written. And so Epaphroditus would hand this letter over to the pastor and he would read it. And you can imagine that people would look around and say to themselves, Didn't we just send Epaphroditus off to help Paul? Isn't he our missionary to Paul? I thought Paul was going to send Timothy. Well, didn't you think Paul was going to send Timothy? Well, that was what my understanding was. Where's Timothy? You know, Timothy's a little bit higher ranker than Epaphroditus. Timothy's been in Ephesus. Timothy has been involved in church planning. Timothy is Paul's right-hand man. He's his son. Does Paul not care about us? 
Why just send Epaphroditus? And you can imagine this. It would sound maybe like mumble, mumble, mumble in the crowd. So what Paul says is, I hope soon to send you Timothy. For I have no one that's like him. But here I have sent you this letter and I've sent you Epaphroditus. You see, Paul has to manage the expectations of the church at Philippi. This is a church that is vibrant. It is growing. It is unified to a good degree. And yet still, they need to learn humility. Because you see, their expectations are that they are worthy of getting Timothy. And they're concerned why they haven't. And Paul has to say, I would love... I would." love nothing more than to send Timothy. But there's a need, an immediate need here. So please, bear with me. So Paul is encouraging the Philippians to be humble. But this doesn't surprise us that humility is a characteristic of the Christian life because Timothy also embodies this. We see this even in the way Paul describes him. Timothy is like a son with a father. There is a father-son relationship. Now, far too often today, especially in America, those who are young in the ministry, those who are young in the faith, want to earn their bones. They want to know that they're just as much involved in the ministry as those that have been doing this for decades, that they're just as important, that their sermons are just as good, that their ministries are just as powerful. But you see, Timothy's not concerned about having himself placed forward. He's happy to be the son to Paul. Even though he is perhaps more heavily involved in the ministry of building the church of the Lord Jesus Christ than anyone else in the church, save Paul. He's planting churches. He's pastoring churches. He's ordaining elders. But he's glad to be called the son of Paul. That's not just an honorific title because he is a servant that does Paul's bidding. He goes where Paul tells him to go. And he, he does what Paul tells him to do. Have you ever noticed how often Timothy shows up in New Testament books? Usually it's Paul saying, I've got Timothy doing this. Or I'm sending Timothy here. You see, Timothy is not concerned about his own stature. He's concerned about the work of the kingdom. He is learning the lesson that we all must learn. That you learn to lead by being led. That's a hard truth, isn't it? Children hate that truth. They don't like to be told where to go, when to go to sleep, what to eat, who to play with, what to do. But you know who else dislikes that lesson? Adults, you, me, we don't like being led. We want to lead. But the the irony is, the truth is, is that we learn to lead by being led. We learn by seeing other good leaders and emulating them. One of the best questions that I got as I was uh, interviewing and candidating in the ministry, and several churches asked this, was, who are your mentors? Who have you learned things from? What things have you learned? You see, sometimes we think we know it all. But the Christian humble life says, I learn by being led. And 
This is something that Timothy embodies. The Christian life is a humble life. But the Christian life is also a selfless life. It is not humble and inward focused. It is humble and outward focused. Timothy is, in a word, if you were to describe him on his resume, it would be reliable. Paul strikes at this when he says, I have no one else like him. Now think about this. There's no one else in the church who is like to him. He actually uses a very interesting word. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It actually says, Timothy is of equal soul or of equal mind to Paul. Now, that can mean one of three things. And I think this is one of these words that gets used because Paul's trying to bring in all the connotations. The first thing he's saying is, there is nobody who is like Timothy. There is no one in the church that is his equal in the ministry. No one who is as capable as Timothy. But he's also saying there is no one who is so like me as Timothy. No one who has so much the same priorities that I do. Who has the same desires for the kingdom as I do. There is no one who is so like the Apostle Paul as Timothy. And then the other aspect to it is, is that there is no one who is so well suited to the task. There is no one like Timothy for the task of going and encouraging or using authority in a congregation. Now, this is something the Bible bears out. Have you ever noticed how often Timothy is sent to another congregation? Timothy is sent to that young congregation in Thessalonica. He's sent to encourage them because they were concerned. You remember Paul had been driven out of Thessalonica. And they were a young congregation with no leaders, and they didn't know what to do. And Paul sends Timothy, his go-to guy. He also sends him to another church that's in trouble. When you think of the church at Corinth, you think of a big mess. What do you do when you have a big mess on your hands? Well, Paul says, I know exactly what I'll do. I'll send Timothy. He says it so strongly that you get the impression that Paul thinks it will be more beneficial for Corinth if he sends Timothy than if he goes himself. That's how devoted to the ministry, devoted to the church of Jesus Christ, Timothy is. And then here we see Paul would desire to send Timothy. Timothy is selfless. He thinks of others. And in this, he is just bearing out the theology that Paul has given to us. What we've been looking at for several weeks. You remember how Paul exhorted the Philippians and you and me to dwell not on our own needs, to think not to our own things, but rather to the things of others. And he said, this is the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Lord Jesus' life was all about, putting others before himself, ministering to others. And that is what embodies the ministry of Timothy. He puts the needs of others above his own. Look at this. He is, Timothy says, uh, Timothy is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. Now, the word here concerned is true, but it's hiding something, I think, here that, that you ought to see. The word here for concerned can be translated and actually is translated later in this letter in another way. Anxious. You know that? Verse from Philippians, it's when Paul says, do not be anxious for what? Anything. Wait a minute here. Paul says, don't be anxious for anything, 
But yet he says Timothy is anxious. Has Timothy got a little way to go in his training? No. You see, the difference here is when Paul tells the Philippians, when Paul tells you not to be anxious for anything, he's saying don't have a selfish anxiety about your own needs, your own wants, and how God will provide for you. But it's perfectly appropriate to be focused, to be, we might even say, worked up about the needs and concerns of others, to want to focus on them, to be praying for them, to be prodded, to want to assist them in any way that we can. This is what embodies the work of Timothy. He is concerned. He is anxious about others. It is a selfless kind of action. This is the work of Timothy. But we have to think about even describing this would be a very sad event for Paul. Because you see, in lifting up Timothy, we see the truth that Paul says, there is no one like Timothy. There is no one who is genuinely concerned for your welfare. There is no one. They all look after their own interests. Now think about that. Paul is saying to the Philippians, I don't have anyone else at this church at Rome. Not the budding theologians. Not the people that are doing things all the time. Not the people who talk about ministry. Not the people who have been in the church the longest. I don't have anyone else that I can send that will not be focused on you instead of themselves. That's how rare the gift of grace is in Timothy. This is what we are to emulate. This is what we are to strive for. How sad a day would it be If we looked around and said, well, we'd like to be able to help and minister to others, but we don't have anyone we can send. Far be it from us. We should never have to say, well, we have to send the pastor because no one else will know how to minister. Well, we have to send an elder because no one else will be able to think about others. No, a healthy, vibrant church is a church in which all are concerned. This is the life of a Christian The final thing that Timothy's life shows us is that the Christian life is focused. There is nothing artificial about Timothy. Perhaps you've seen this. Perhaps others have come alongside you in this fashion. Perhaps you have tried to work up an artificial ministry. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's the sort of thing you're supposed to be doing this, but your heart really isn't in it. Not so for Timothy. The word here that he is genuinely concerned for their own interests actually has the connotation of by birthright. Legitimately and genuinely concerned. And birthright obviously draws in for us the concept that Timothy as a child of God who has been begotten again by the power of the Holy Spirit, who has new life, he is genuinely, spiritually concerned for others. You see, there are ways in which, if we are not focused, we can waste our lives. You've heard of that title of that book from John Piper, Don't Waste Your Life. Well, there's, I think, at least three ways in which we can waste our life. The first is obvious, that is which we are lazy. We don't take the task that is before us. Timothy or Epaphroditus puts in a call to Paul and says, you know, I'm kind of busy this weekend. I've got to sit and watch the grass grow can't really be involved going to Philippi. And that's obvious. 
The second would be our lives can be wasted if we're headed toward a wrong goal. If Timothy and Epaphroditus had called up and said, well, you know, I would really love to be able to help this church that's going through difficulty and to minister to these people, but, you know, I've got to work on my model collection. That's, I mean, I haven't spent enough time on that this week. I've only spent 15 hours on my model collection, and I've told myself, if I don't give 40 hours a week to my model collection, it's a wasted week. And again, we look at that, and that would be obvious. But there's a third way in which I think we can not be focused, and that is by dabbling around the edges. You know, there's a fancy word for that. A Dillonette. Someone who works on the side, who tries to be involved in many things, but is a master of none. Who isn't really focused, who flits from one job to the other. Whatever takes his fancy. And you see, the Christian life is not about that. It's about focused, hard work. It's about finding the gifts that God has given to you and using them to full effect. Not being distracted. Not being pushed aside. So, Timothy teaches us that the Christian life is a humble life, it is a selfless life, and it is a focused life. Then we turn to the second man in our report. A man with a name that's hard to pronounce, Epaphroditus. We can all say that together later, Epaphroditus. And he teaches us first that the Christian life is a committed life. It is a committed life. It's also a sacrificial life. Epaphroditus teaches us that the Christian life is a committed life. We see this by the way that Paul describes him. Paul uses three descriptions for Epaphroditus. He says, Epaphroditus is my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier. He is my brother, my fellow worker, and my soldier. He is a brother to Paul. You see, the Christian life is a committed life, first and foremost, because of the relationships that we have one with another. We are committed to each other by a bond. We have a common family. Now, I want you to think about this phrase where Paul calls Epaphroditus his brother. And step back and think about their relative backgrounds. Because, you see, oftentimes in the church we look around and we see someone grew up in a different country than I did or spoke a different language or has a different skin color or likes a different football team or has different thoughts. And therefore, we can't really ever have a close relationship. You see, here we have two men. The first grew up as a Pharisee of Pharisees. One of his favorite phrases to use was to look at a Gentile and call them dogs. He would probably, as he saw a Roman soldier go by or a Greek man go by, spit on the ground after they passed by. Because, of course, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew of Jews, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. This was the Apostle Paul. This was his parents' life. This was his grandparents' life. This was everything that he knew. And then we have Epaphroditus, whose name actually means favorite of Aphrodite. Aphrodite is the Greek name for Venus, the goddess of love. You know, the one that the famous painting coming out of the clamshell that we don't show our children because it's a nude. She's the goddess of love. And 
in many senses, lust. And so he would have been a first-rate pagan. You, your father doesn't name you favorite of Aphrodite unless he likes Aphrodite. So Epaphroditus grew up in a pagan household. He's a Gentile. He's a dog. He would have looked at the Pharisees and said, these backwater hicks, these guys who are not cultured, they don't understand how the world works, you know, with the beards that are funny and the hats and the this and the that. These are two men that would never have sat at a table to eat or shared a cup of coffee. And yet, Jesus Christ has brought them together that Paul uses the dearest term that he can. My brother. Dearer even than my friend. The Christian life is a committed life because of the relationships we have. It's also a committed life because we are called to work and to work hard. Epaphroditus is a fellow worker with Paul. Paul knows what it is like to work. He's on the road a lot. He gets whipped. He gets stoned with rocks. He's in jail. He's got chains on. He gets shipwrecked. He gets attacked by snakes. He's a hard worker. And he looks at Epaphroditus and he says, this guy works right along with me. He is a fellow worker. He's not just a worker in the kingdom of God. He is a worker with me. He is a fellow worker. Paul enjoys using this phrase throughout his epistles to remind the church of God that they are in this task with him. They are not observing him working for the ministry. They are involved with him. And that work is hard. And this is yet more evidence that God is the one who works through us. Because you see, God can take a legalistic Pharisee and a pagan of pagans and use them to build his kingdom to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a work that Paul does in concert with others. It is a common work. And it reminds us that it is important not just to have relational skills. We should. We should relate with one another. We should encourage one another. But in addition to relational skills, we must have laboring effort in the church. It is not enough to be a people person. You must also be a doing person. You must be using the gifts that God has given to you. Because he has given them to you for a reason. You must labor alongside your brothers and sisters to build up the kingdom. Epaphroditus is a fellow worker, but he is also a fellow soldier. This word is not used often in the New Testament. And it is used of those whom Paul labors in very difficult situations with. It is actually a term that was used of honor among soldiers. You wouldn't just look at the private down the row from you and say, he's my fellow soldier. It was actually a term that would be used perhaps even in the same way in which we speak of a soldier who has earned the Congressional Medal of Honor for their selfless, sacrificial service to their fellow soldiers for great bravery. That's the kind of term this is. When you had this term applied to your name, it was almost like you were right alongside the commander-in-chief of the army. It was a term of honor. It means that you are able to endure hardship and difficulty because soldiers are required to endure hardship. It is not fun to be living in a sandstorm. 
in 120 degree heat in the Middle East. It is not fun to be trekking through jungles and swamps with cold rations to eat. It is not fun to be carrying your buddies around when they're exhausted or wounded. Soldiers must be able to endure hardship. And this is also true of the Christian life. Soldiers endure such hardship that they must be ready to to suffer pain and even death for others. They must be ready to die. Epaphroditus is ready to die. He risked his life, Paul says, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus was a man who was ready to die. I ask you this question in your Christian life. Are you ready to die? It doesn't matter if you're young. It doesn't matter if you're in the best of health. Have you thought about your life and the service that you would give to your Lord? And are you ready to meet Him? You see, it may not be pleasant to think about, but that is one of the most serious responsibilities that a minister has. To teach you to be ready to die. To die well. And that means not thinking about death, but thinking about life. Leaving it all on the table. Doing all that we can. Using our gifts for others. Thinking about others and our service to them. Thinking about our Lord and His kingdom. You see, we cannot be ready to die unless we are willing to live for the Lord. It is impossible. That is the Christian life. The Christian life is also a life of sacrifice, Epaphroditus teaches us. Because you see, he's given two other titles. He is your messenger, in verse 25, and your minister to my need. He is called a messenger, a messenger of the Philippians to Paul. It's actually an apostle. Epaphroditus is their apostle to Paul. Now, lest you be concerned and say, wait a minute, I thought there were only 12 apostles. We don't have other apostles here. Well, the 12 apostles, including Paul, were apostles of Christ. They were specifically commissioned by Christ to carry his word, to inscripturate it, and to begin his church through the Great Commission. Epaphroditus is one of the second generation of those who are sent out. He is an apostle, not of Christ, but of the church. And it's just as important It's the next step in the chain. This is the chain that you and I are a part of. We are sent out by the church into our communities, into our workplaces, into our schools, to think of others, to serve others. Now, can you imagine, knowing what we know of Epaphroditus, the embarrassment that he would have as this letter is being read? You know what this is like. You You've seen people all around. Perhaps this is like you. Whenever anyone starts to talk at all about the things that you've done, you you get red. And you look down and you look around. Oh, no. You're embarrassed by it. Now, can you imagine Epaphroditus? He brings this letter and Paul is going on. He's my fellow worker. He's my brother. He's my fellow soldier. He risked his life to help me. Can you imagine how embarrassing that would be? Because you see, Epaphroditus was not about the recognition. He was about the work. He wanted to minister to Paul's need. He was the kind of man, if you can imagine this, that he was sick. 
deathly sick. And he became very distressed and agitated by that. The word here for distressed is the same word that's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's almost a distress to the point of losing your mind. And he is so distressed by this because he's afraid that the Philippians will be upset or that the Philippians will be sad. He's not distressed by his illness or by his state. He's distressed by what others will go through because he is sick. Can you imagine that? What a sacrificial viewpoint of life. He is a messenger. He is a servant. Also, a risk taker. He is one who goes out in and among the community. He risked his life, Paul says. He literally staked his life on the gospel. The word here for risk was used in the ancient world. If you, unlike the American judicial system, if you sued someone for an amount of money, you had to take that amount of money and put it with the court and put it up at risk. So if you lost, you lost your money. It was your stake. Some of you might think of it this way. When you uh, bought your house back in the days when contracts required real earnest money, you had to put down five, ten thousand $10,000, several percent of the cost of the home, and if the deal didn't go through and it was your fault, you would lose the money. It was a risk. You see, that's the kind of life that Epaphroditus has, but for the gospel, he stakes his life on the gospel. He's willing to risk everything he has for the work of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to risk that? You see, because oftentimes we're not even willing to risk what job our children will end up with. We're not willing to risk them being missionaries or risk them working in a low-income neighborhood so they might minister there. We're not willing to risk them being friends with people we're not so sure about. We're not willing to risk befriending someone who we think might hurt us. You see, the gospel life is one of risk-taking. Risk-taking for the gospel. Not recklessness, but of putting our life on the line for the gospel. Well, Paul has described for us what the Christian life is like by telling us the story of Timothy. And by telling us the story of Epaphroditus. But there's one story left to be heard. I'll be brief, but I think it's important. And that is the third missionary report here. The third story to be heard is that of Paul himself. Because you see, in this report, we see Paul showing us what are important aspects of the Christian life as well. The first thing that we see is that the Christian life is one of fellowship. Now, let me be clear what I do not mean by this. I don't mean ham and turkey at a sandwich supper. Well, maybe there's something involved with that. But we think of fellowship as simply around about food. Or perhaps we stand around and have a brief conversation. That's a component of fellowship. It's perhaps a precursor to fellowship. It might be an arena in which fellowship occurs. But real fellowship is commitment and friendship in the church. You see, Paul tells us that we are not intended to go it alone. Oftentimes, we are tempted in the church to place up walls. They might be transparent walls, 
but they're walls nonetheless from other people. We think that we've, we've got it quite together. We're chugging along just fine, whether it be us individually or perhaps we widen that to our family and we put walls around our family and we say, you know, the last thing I need is Joe coming alongside here and, and messing up what I've got going. I don't want my life to be messy. But you see, the Christian life needs to be at times messy. It needs to be one of deep friendship and fellowship because if anyone could have gone it alone, it was Paul. Think of the gifts that he had. Speak in tongues? Check. Interpret tongues? Check. Church plant? Check. Go up to the third heaven? Check. See the risen Christ? Check. Look at all the gifts that Paul has. Think of the authority that Paul had. Perhaps the most authoritative person in the church at this day. His sway was certainly much wider geographically than Peter's. So he doesn't need to get anyone's permission for anything. He is the leader of leaders. Think of his theology. Paul has his head on straight all the time with his theology. He doesn't need to be kind of brought in tow like Peter does in Galatians. He doesn't need to be reminded of what things are going on like Barnabas does. Paul has it all together. If anybody should be able to sit in the corner and live the Christian life apart from others in blessed harmony, it's Paul. But look at what Paul says. He says, I can't send you Timothy. I need him. I can't be without him. Not even for the week or two it would take to go to Philippi. I've got to have Timothy here with me. And if, if I had my way, I'd have Epaphroditus here too. I don't have anyone else I could send. Or I would keep him here because I need him. He ministers to me. I need your assistance. There's a lack here. I need fellowship. Now, this kind of fellowship in our midst is essential. It is important that we break down the walls that we want to put up around us. But we have to remember that this kind of fellowship does not mean that we are perfect or are aiming for perfection. I will let you in on a secret that maybe I shouldn't. People are going to let you down. People are going to let you down in a bad way. Your officers are going to let you down. They're going to say things that are inappropriate. They're going to fail to minister to your needs. They're going to fail to pick up on things that they should. Your pastors are going to let you down. They're not going to act as quickly as they should. They're not going to know the Bible verse that they should. We let each other down. But that is not a bar to our fellowship and ministry to each other. You see... We take that as a given, that as sinners we will let each other down, and that gives us the blessing of displaying the grace of forgiveness. Even as we have been forgiven by Christ, we forgive others. You see, Paul says, I can live with people letting me down. You'll notice he doesn't kick all the Roman Christians out of the church because they're good for nothings. No, he says, I can live with people letting me down, but I cannot live apart from other Christians. I just can't. Even in jail, I can't. The Christian life is one of fellowship. It's also, though, one of joy. Paul has talked 
previously in verses 17 and 18 about being poured out sacrificially and that that was a joy for him. That even in the midst of sacrifice and sacrificial service, he rejoices. But I want to remind you of something else. We are tempted, I think, perhaps at times to look at Paul and others in the scriptures and say, well, you know, good for Paul to tell me that he can live a joyful Christian life. You know, maybe his life isn't easy, but, you know, he's got a direct line to the Holy Spirit. He's writing Bible books, right? And with all other things being difficult, he's still seeing success. His churches are planting. His churches are doubling. He's seeing people come to Christ. I can't tell you when was the last time I saw someone come to Christ. Sure, Paul can be joyful. Paul uses an opportunity, I think, here in this ministry report to remind us that he is like us. And that the joyful life of a Christian does not immunize you from trial. What do I mean? Look with me at verse 27. He's describing his joy that God has spared Epaphroditus. And he says, God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me. I'm so thankful that God had mercy on Epaphroditus. Why is this a mercy on me? Because it was lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now think about that for a minute. He doesn't just say, I would be sorry if Epaphroditus died. He doesn't just say it would be a sad day. He says, that would bring me sorrow. But where would that sorrow lay? On top of other sorrow. He's already got sorrow. He's a joyful Christian, but he has sorrow every day when he wakes up. He doesn't want sorrow upon sorrow. Look at verse 28. Let this encourage you next time you catch yourself being anxious. Paul, the author of Do Not Be Anxious for Big words, right? Verse 28. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I might be less anxious. Not that I might not be anxious, that I might be less anxious than I am now. Now, does that mean Paul saying you're free to be anxious? No. Because in the same way that Paul says be anxious for nothing, I stand up here each week and tell you not to sin at all, never once, and to completely trust the Lord in everything. Second dirty little secret. That doesn't happen in my life all the time. You see, the Word of God is the Word of God. And Paul says to us that the joyful Christian life can happen in the midst of trials, in the midst of sorrows, and in the midst of anxiety. This is Paul, the man who has nobody else beside him. So, Paul shows us that the Christian life is one of fellowship, that it's one of joy. The final thing, briefly, is that he shows us that the Christian life is one of trust in the Lord. Paul trusts the Lord not implicitly, but explicitly. Paul's trust in the Lord is such that he rejoices in telling others about how much he trusts in God. Look at what he does. Paul trusts the Lord with his ministry. Verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Now, this is not a parathetical. This is not something Paul just throws out because someone's checking to make sure he's saying, well, in the Lord Jesus, or you better say Lord willing. No, this is the truth of that scripture. 
Lord willing. This is Paul says, I trust that Jesus will permit me to send Timothy to you. And as a matter of fact, I trust that he'll let me come to you. I'm not worried about the ministry. That's not my problem. That's God's problem. Think of that to yourself. Next time something seems overwhelming, say to yourself, that's not my problem. That's God's problem. And leave it with Him. Trust Him. He trusts Him not only with His ministry, He trusts Him with His very life. Look here in verse 24. I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now this is a man facing execution as a traitor if he is convicted. And he says, I trust in the Lord. I don't trust in the Roman justice system. I don't trust in my $500 an hour lawyer. I don't trust in the character witnesses that will come. I trust in the Lord and that He will do this because His work will go forward. The Christian life is one of trust in the Lord. This is the life of service and ministry to others. It is a life that is humble, a life that is selfless, a life that is focused like a laser beam in which we commit to each other and cling to each other. It is a life in which we sacrifice one for another. It is a life in which we have fellowship and joy together. And it is a life in which God is all in all. And we trust Him to bring about all of this, not just in others' lives, but in our own lives as well.